There was a man sent by God whose name was John. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Today we'll tell a story about a particularly great triumph of the Holy Name. What follows is mostly just a long series of, of quotes and paraphrases clipped from too many works to cite in a sermon. The main body is taken from actual eyewitness accounts. On May 29, 1453, Constantinople fell to the forces of the Sultan of the Ottoman Empire, the sadistic pervert Mohammed II. Mohammed II immediately turned his sights on the Serbian city of Belgrade, which at that time was a border town in the Kingdom of Hungary. Hungary was far larger in those days. Belgrade is a great fortress city. It lies in the confluence of, of two rivers, the Danube and the Sava. And once the Turks captured Belgrade, the road to Vienna and the European heartland would be open. So the Sultan ordered his army to be ready for a campaign in the spring of 1456. Catastrophe was looming, and the Christian princes, fully aware of it, could agree on nothing, and ultimately did nothing. Meanwhile, in Rome, in the conclave of 1455, a Spaniard Alfonso Borgia was elected pope and took the name of Calixtus III. He clearly understood the threat posed by the Turks and the religion of peace. And he made that perfectly clear at his papal consecration when he took this oath. Now listen to this. This is the pope's, pope's oath. Quote, I, Pope Calixtus III, promise and vow to the Holy Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, to the ever-Virgin Mother of God, to the holy apostles Peter and Paul, and to all the heavenly host, that I will do everything in my power, even if needs be, sacrifice my life, to reconquer Constantinople, which in punishment for the sin of man has been taken and ruined by Mohammed II, the son of the devil, and the enemy of our crucified Redeemer. Further, I vow to deliver the Christians languishing in slavery, to exalt the true faith, and to extirpate the diabolical sect of the reprobate and faithless Mohammed in the East. For there the light of faith is almost completely extinguished. So help me God and his holy gospel, amen. Close quotes, Calixtus III, Vicar of Christ. Then the Pope commissioned a 70-year-old Franciscan friar named St. John Capistrano to preach and lead a crusade against the Turks. St. John had studied theology under and also been a preaching companion of the, Saint, the great St. Bernardine of Siena. And in the company of St. Bernardine, St. John Capistrano had developed a great devotion to the holy names of Jesus and Mary. His fame as a preacher and miracle worker was so great that the princes and kings all over Europe were constantly inviting him to preach in their countries. But the saint's invariable reply was to urge the rulers to act promptly to repel the Turks. But they couldn't be bothered. While St. John was celebrating brass in Nuremberg, he heard voices continually repeating, to Hungary, to Hungary. And again, as he preached in the public square, he heard the same voices in the air, crying out, to Hungary, to Hungary. And during Mass on another day, St. John had a vision of an arrow with the words, Fear not, John, go down quickly. In the power of my name and of the Holy Cross, Thou will conquer the Turks. 
Early in 1456, the papal legate to Hungary succeeded in convening a council of war. The king, sort of a classic guy for his times, found an excuse to miss the council and in fact left the country because he needed to go hunting. The council decided to form an army and appointed Janus Honeydi commander in chief. Honeydi was a deeply religious man who had spent most of his life fighting the Turks. With the exception of St. John Capistrano, Honeydi could find no significant allies to accompany him to Belgrade. He did enlist the help of one young Orthodox Prince Vlad, who agreed to guard the passes into Romania, and thus cut off the Turk. The papal legate presented St. John a cross which had been sent to him by the Pope and told him to give a similar cross to each one that would join the crusade. So St. John traveled around enlisting everyone who offered himself. To each one he gave a cross, I mean that's where we get the word crusader after all, and he promised victory for the Christians. He was telling them the story of the arrow that he had sawn, that in the power of the name and the holy cross they will conquer the Turks. Soon he had a following of many thousands made up largely of inexperienced and very poorly armed men. Somehow he organized them into some semblance of an army, provisioned them, and entered Belgrade with them on July 2, 1456, and it was none too soon. Because Turkish galleys were all on the Danube near the fortress, and the Turkish army was on the move towards Hungary. Heavy artillery had been cast, reportedly by melting down the bells in Constantinople, and it was now being transported. On June 29th, the Pope commanded the Catholic people throughout Christendom to pray and to repent for their sins had brought the scourge upon them. He ordered all priests to insert a votive uh, collect against the pagans into their masses, and he ordered that a bell should be rung daily at midday in order to remind everybody of their duty to pray. On July 3rd, the first part of the Turkish army, which numbered from around 150,000 to 200,000 men, was seen before the city. Besides seven huge mortars capable of throwing huge stones, they had more than 300 cannon, 200 of which had extraordinary length for that time of 27 feet. The sultan camped on a hill. It was surrounded by a mound and a ditch, and around that hill were the, were the tents and standards of 5,000 Janissaries. Now, the Janissaries were the absolutely elite fighting force of the Ottoman Empire. Where did they come from? The empire had a special levy. It required boys from the age of 8 to 16 from Christian families. It was a tax on boys, and only Christian boys. And then they were taken to special camps where they were forcibly converted to Islam and formed into these elite soldiers. And then when fighting the Turk, the Christians actually had to fight against and kill their own flesh and blood. It was absolutely satanic. Back to the battle. On the two rivers, the Turks had 64 large galleys besides a great number of smaller craft. On land, they enclosed the city by extending their lines from one river to the other, so they effectively sealed the city off so that no supplies could come in now by land or water. Within the city itself, the greater number of the Crusaders had never been in battle before, had not even been trained to bear arms. Meanwhile, Hanyadi had not yet arrived. After Mass on July 4th, St. John Capistrano preached a stirring sermon to the Crusaders, foretelling their ultimate triumph, exhorting them to fight bravely, and if needs be, to die as martyrs for the sake of Christ, and he promised to bring back with him such a number of Crusaders as would even staunch the Turks. To the priests and brothers, he said, quote, Hear confessions, 
soothe quarrels, take care of the sick and wounded, bury the dead, preach fortitude and courage. But those of you who are priests, beware not to attack any of the Turks, nor to provide or fashion stones, arrows, or other arms for the troops. Your weapons against the enemies of the cross of Christ are prayers, masses, works of mercy, and the administration of the sacraments. For the lay brothers, I make no rule and have no commands for them, except that they act as God may inspire them. Close quote. Then with four friars and a few of the crusaders, he left the city and made his way through considerable dangers up the Danube to find Hunyadi. Having found him, he persuaded him to take command of the fortress and enlist new troops. Within 10 days, they had collected an army. Meanwhile, back at Belgrade, the enemy had mounted their artillery and began the bombardment. Though the city was strongly fortified, it had double walls, and each wall had a moat in front of it. The heavy bombardment soon reduced the outer wall into ruins and seriously damaged the citadel itself. A plague broke out, and the provisions also began to become scarce. On July 14th, the relieving force under Capistrano Hunyadi made their way down the Danube in their fleet of boats with one large warship they had in the lead. Both the Turks and the Christians soon learned of their approach. The Christians had 40 little vessels in their docks, and they quickly prepared them for action. The great Turkish galleys advanced to intercept the Crusaders, and so they took a position a little above the city where they were tied together so they formed a complete barrier across the whole river. Before meeting them, Hunyani landed some of his men to engage any of the enemy that might try to come to the aid on shore. St. John Capistrano also went ashore with a certain Peter, a nobleman who carried a standard of the cross, and he found a high point of ground to stand on. Then the Christians, with their one warship and many small boats, attacked under heavy fire from the guns. And meanwhile, the four little boats from the city closed in behind the enemy. So you have this fight at close quarters. So here's these little tiny vessels coming up to the galleys, and these guys are climbing on board. The crusaders are climbing on board and having fights, sword fights and pistol fights. During the five hours this battle lasted, St. John Capistrano is standing up on a high point with his, 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 his uh, standard bearer holding the cross towards them, and he's praying and calling out the holy name of Jesus over the battle. Those in the city were also praying. The line of ships was finally broken, and this mosquito fleet of the Christians then surrounds them and keeps on attacking. And the victory's complete. Of the Turkish galleys, some were sunk, others were captured, and those that were escaped were so damaged as to be unusable. With the river cleared, the relieving force could now enter the city, and they were free to bring in other supplies or troops as needed. The defending army now numbered about 60,000 men, nearly all Hungarians, although there were a few Germans, Poles, some other Slavs, and Bosnians. St. John's secretary says of them, Among them there was no idleness, drunkenness, nor immorality, no evil speaking, gambling, theft, nor quarreling, but prayers, hearing mass, and reception of the sacraments. Each group had its own priest, and they were ready to face any danger at a word from St. John. Who ever heard of an army like this? During the week that followed the naval victory, the Turks began to fill up the outermost moat with wood, earth, and rubbish of all kinds to pave the way for a general assault. St. John scarcely ate or slept. He was seen everywhere, consoling the timid, providing for the needs of the sick and wounded, exhorting the soldiers to bravery, inspiring everyone with his own unbounded trust in God. No one could accompany him for very long without being overcome with fatigue. In fact, Hunyadi got him a horse 
and he rode it into the ground in just a couple days and kept on going. He appeared to grow stronger as the days passed by. Every morning he celebrated Mass and addressed to the people words of hope and encouragement to persevere in prayer and piety. By July 20th, the outer walls were leveled to the ground, and it was no longer possible to repair the breaches opened in the interior walls by the incessant artillery fire. The great tower of the citadel showed a wide crack from top to bottom and looked like it was going to collapse at any moment. Even the great Hunyadi gave up hope when he saw the condition of the fortress and said as much to St. John. St. John replied, Fear not. God is able with a few weak men to overthrow the Turkish power, to defend the city, and to put our enemies to shame. But Hunyadi was unconvinced. Tomorrow the fortress will no longer be ours. St. John replied, Fear not. It will be ours indeed. We are fighting God's cause. We are defending the name of Christ and God will protect his own. On the evening of the next day, the 21st of July, the loud blast of trumpets and the shouts of the entire Turkish army were heard. The Christians lined the ruins of the outer wall, praying and calling aloud the holy name of Jesus. Turks advanced, hurling themselves fiercely upon the defenders. Many carried bundles of straw and pieces of wood, which they threw into the moat. And they swarmed up the bank, swords in hand. Some were firing pistols, others throwing spears, and arrows filled the air. But the Christians held their own on the higher ground. Great number of Turks were slain. In greater and greater numbers, Turks stormed the mound, but the Christians, gaining confidence, fought harder than ever. Their battle cry was the holy name of Jesus. Once again, St. John stood in a prominent place with his standard bearer and prayed like another Moses through the whole fight. The struggle went on until about an hour after sunset when the Turks finally retreated. But at midnight, they returned fiercely to the attack, this time carrying ladders to scale the defenses. This battle lasted longer than before. Over time, the Christians were forced back and retreated to the second wall, which was also protected by a moat. Again, the horde of Turks came on and began to fill this moat with brush, wood, straw, and such light material. A furious battle was raging on the one, on the one bridge that crossed the moat, but even the moat itself was densely packed with men struggling to, to scale the mound and get up on those half-ruined walls. It was just before dawn when the Christians conceived a new plan. Those in the rear prepared hundreds of bundles of twigs and thorns with sulfur. They lit them and passed them up to the men on the front who cast them down all at once on the enemy. The inflammable material thrown down by the Turks burst into flame and suddenly the whole length of this trench was a raging inferno. Suffocated by the sulfurous smoke and consumed by the raging fire, nearly all the Turks who were below the walls perished, and those survived ran away screaming, the God of the Christians is fighting for them. Among Christians there was great joy and thanksgiving, but from the enemy's camp no sound was heard. In the full daylight the charred bodies of the Turks were seen piled up within the trench from end to end. Of the Christians, not more than 60 were killed outright in the final assault, although many more were wounded. The ground was covered with arrows and spears, which the women and children picked up and bundled into sheaves as if they were gathering wheat. It's the second battle won by the Christians. The third and crowning victory was later that same day, 22nd July, the Feast of St. Mary Magdalene. Rejoicing at such unexpected success, but fearing that the Crusaders might rashly expose themselves to danger, and lose all the advantage they had gained, 
Hanyadi had ordered that no one should leave the camp since they were still greatly outnumbered by the Turks. But one party after another advanced towards enemy lines, shutting their battle cry of Jesus. St. John saw that they were not to be deterred, so he went forth himself so they wouldn't be without a leader. The Turks seemed terrified, for they made no resistance, but fled. There were 4,000 Christians or more when at last the Turks began to rally and oppose the Christian charge. St. John Capistrano knew that the supreme moment had come. Let him flee who is afraid, he cried. For 40 years I have waited for this hour. Then, as he did in other battles, he found a prominent point to stand in sight of both the Christians and Turks, and so he's exposing himself to imminent danger of death with all the arrows and spears flying all over the place. He has Peter's standard bearer. He orders him to raise the cross and point it towards the foe. He calls aloud to the Christians that God had delivered the enemy into their hands, and he's calling on the holy name. So this fight was hotly contested for a while, but the cries of Jesus filling the air seemed to have had more than human terrors for the infidels, and the battle turned into a rout. Some of the Turkish cavalry made a final effort to turn the tide and began loping with their lances at rest and fierce shouts towards uh, St. John Capistrano. But again, the holy name of Jesus seemed to fill them with a supernatural fear, and they turned in confusion and wheeled around and fled. By this time, the whole Christian army had poured out of the city. The Turks were driven from their camp and soon were in full retreat. Upon realizing that the Turks were utterly defeated, the saint gave orders to have the troops recalled, for although he had a desire to defeat and rout the enemies of Christianity for years, he had no love for butchery. The Turks lost 50,000 men in the battle, including all the warlords who had taken Constantinople. Muhammad II himself was wounded and had to be restrained from killing himself. Another 25,000 Turks were slain by Serbs during their retreat. The Christians lost less than 10,000 men. St. John said the good news to the Pope on the very day of victory. And as a lasting memorial of the great event, the Pope ordered that the Feast of the Transfiguration of our Lord should be celebrated throughout the Christian world every year on, which, on the day in which the news of the victory reached Rome, August 6th. That's why we have the Feast of the Transfiguration on August 6th. A few weeks later, on August 11, 1456, Janus Hunyadi died from the plague that had been ra ravaging Belgrade during the siege. Two months after that, St. John Capistrano died. What became of the only ally of Hunyadi, the Orthodox Prince Vlad, who guarded the passes into Romania? Well, the Turks called him Vlad the Impaler, because that's what he did with him when he caught him. Although today he's generally known by the name which he used for himself. His father, Prince Vlad II, had joined the Order of the Dragon. That was a, a chivalric order that was established for, for, on the basis of strictly fighting the Turks. And uh, so his son, Vlad III, was known as the Son of the Dragon, or, or Vlad Dracula. Uh, so as one author has pointed out, the Feast of the Transfiguration owes its place in the calendar in part to the courageous actions of the real Count Dracula. As we heard during the siege, Pope Calixtus III had ordered the noon bell to call believers to pray for the defenders. But as it turned out, in many places, the news of the victory arrived before that order. So the bell was rung in commemoration of the victory, and the Pope himself modified his command to fit this interpretation. In 1956, in his apostolic letter, Dum Marenti Animo, which is about the persecution of the Catholic Church in Eastern Europe, and Communist China. Pope Pius XII recalled the 500th anniversary of the order by Pope Calixtus and again asked the faithful throughout the world to pray for the persecuted church in the East 
during the ringing of the midday Angelus. It would be good for each of us to take that to heart as we pray the noontime Angelus each day. Not just to recall the great victory of our ancestors in the faith, but also to remember our brothers and sisters in Christ who are still groaning under the satanic yoke of Islam and communism and even Zionism and to pray for their speedy release. Let us take care to remember them every day at the noontime Angelus. <laughs>